And so last week we looked at the Old Testament pillar. We looked at Noah. It just seemed like the right guy to look at in a time of, of chaos and, and uh, calamity. I don't know if that's too strong to say or not, a pandemic. And um, we found that he was, number one, a pillar because if it wasn't for Noah and his family, we wouldn't be here. That um, we are, um, as human beings, alive because God rescued Noah and his family in the ark. But we found that he took, God took notice of him and that um, it said something really interesting about Noah. It said he was a righteous and a blameless man who walked with God. And last week we looked at that, how he was righteous. He did the right thing. He was blameless. He didn't do the wrong things in, culture, in a culture that was crazy and chaotic and ungodly. And that he, as through all that, had the strength of character to walk with God. And so uh, that was last week, our Old Testament pillar. Well, this week we're going to look at a New Testament pillar. So I just asked, you know, myself and I asked the Spirit to try to help me say, God, who would be the right person of all the wonderful New Testament people we could look at to look at just as a, as a solid um, pillar that the church has been built on? And I really felt that for this week, the pillar we should look at is James. And James, by James, I mean the author of the book of James. We're going to talk about who he is. That James, who wrote the book of James, is not um, James and John, one of the sons of thunder, that he's not one of the disciples uh, but this is James, the author of the book of James. And you say, well, why would you choose him? Why would you choose of all the people, not one of the 12, not Jesus, obviously, why would you choose of all the people, not, not Paul, why would you choose him as a pillar? Well, this is the reason why. It's because he was the first ever Christian pastor. You might not think of that, but James really was the first ever Christian pastor. He pastored the brand new church in Jerusalem that was established just after the death and then resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So he is a pillar, the pillar upon which the established church, what it means to be a pastor and what a local church looks like, James was incredibly influential in that. And I've got to tell you something. I've had some challenges as a pastor, but I've never had any challenge remotely as challenging as James had um, pastoring that brand new developing fledgling church that he pastored in Jerusalem. See, when he was the pastor um, in Jerusalem, it was a time of incredible turmoil. It was a time of religious turmoil. Remember, these Christians in this first church were almost all Jewish people who had come to know Christ. And so it was incredible religious turmoil because um, they, were, they were persecuted. The Jews thought that they were heretics and, and couldn't stand them. Uh, the Romans thought they were troublemakers, and so this little fledgling church was incredibly persecuted. So it was a time of religious persecution and turmoil. It was a time of political turmoil. Uh, remember, as, as they're Christians, but they're Jews, and they're living under the oppression of Roman rule. And he's trying to figure out, how do I pastor a church under the domination of a foreign government? And it was a time of incredible um, instability, uh, economic instability, against, especially against Christians. Um, Christians were the lowest of the low in society. Um, crucifixion of Christians was a regular thing under Rome. And Christians, matter of fact, one of the things that James writes about is Christian people who were working and they weren't getting paid by their rich other Christians who um, owned land. And so they were prosecuted or they were being persecuted. They were um, not getting paid. Their, their property was being seized. And so an incredibly tumultuous time that um, this brand new fledgling church arises and James um, is the pastor. And James becomes a pastor and a leader and he is, he is um, 
as this leader having to deal with all kinds of really difficult things. If you would look in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15, it talks about James being the primary figure or one of the main voices who helps the brand new church navigate what does it mean to be a non-Jewish Christian and how, do we, how does a non-Jewish Christian live out their faith? And he helps navigate that process of, of how do you live as a non-Jew and be a Christian? And I'm awful glad for the influence of James um, because he, he was a devout Jew, but he helped them understand that, that non-Jews did not have to live according to the law and the rules of Judaism. And we can all say thank God for that. You know why? You're watching this Sunday morning, and you know what some of you did today that you can thank James for? You know what? You ate bacon. And if he wanted to come in and, and said that Jews don't have to, or that, that Gentiles don't have to live by Jewish rules, you wouldn't be eating bacon this morning. And I love bacon, so I love James. Now, here's my thought. Why do you think that the Holy Spirit led the, led the early church to select James to be the first ever Christian pastor, that we would look 2,000 years ago and say, this guy is a pillar of, of Christianity, a pillar of faith that we want to spend uh, this time together talking about. Why him? Well, I wasn't there, but I have some ideas on why I think the Spirit would have picked him at this very strategic time. And the first is this. James was a cynic turned servant. So let me remind you who James is. I didn't say this earlier because I wanted to hold it till now. But when I say James, the author of the book of James, some of you know a little more detail about who I'm referring to. And some, let me remind you, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this is, this is who he's writing about. That, Joe, that Mary was Jesus' mom, and Mary would have been James's mom, but Joseph would have been James's father, but Joseph was not Jesus's father, because who? Jesus was virgin born, and it says the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. So, so, so Jesus and Joseph, or Jesus and and um, and um, James have the same mom. They're half half brothers, and we know from Scripture that during the time of Jesus's ministry. James and his other brothers, of Jesus' other brothers, did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't think he was a prophet, didn't think he was the Messiah. He's their brother. And we even know that from Scripture at one point when Jesus was doing ministry, that um, his family, and it would have included James and his brothers and his mother, came to find Jesus because they thought he was literally a little off his rocker. They thought he was kind of going crazy and they tried to get Jesus to come home with them. They tried to pull him from the crowd and say, listen, there's something wrong with you. And that's the time in Scripture when they said to Jesus, hey, your mother and your, and your, your brothers and your family's here. And he says, who is my mother? Who is my father? Who, who are my brothers? And he says, you know, these, these followers are my family. And so his family was, did not think that he was um, the Messiah. Um, his mother would have Mary, but his brothers didn't. And James, here he is, and he doesn't think, he kind of thinks Jesus is off his rocker. But then something happens. They arrest him, they crucify him, they bury him in a tomb, and all of a sudden, his, what he thinks, half-crazy, half-brother 
rises from the dead. And Jesus at one point tells, as he just rises from the dead, tells people, listen, go tell my disciples and James, my brother, that I'm alive, that I've risen. And when Jesus raises from the dead, he becomes a believer. And, um, and he became a believer um, and it had, had something that other people wouldn't have had. He became, when he became a believer, he had a lifetime of knowledge and experience with Jesus. Because unlike the rest of the disciples, here he is, he's somebody who grew up with Jesus. And no one knew Jesus. No one would have known Jesus better than his own brother, James. So no one else could have grasped what was going on here like like James could have. No one could have grasped because what God was doing, they didn't understand. They were figuring it out on the fly. And no one else could have grasped it, what God was doing like James could have. And no one could have, could have served as a better example of what it was to be someone who didn't know, was this true what they're saying of Jesus, and then the light bulb goes on, and he comes to an understanding. No one else would have, could have better illustrated what it meant to become a follower of Jesus better than James. He serves as a model to every cynic who's ever investigated the claims of Jesus. For every person who ever scoffs at the teachings of Jesus, who dismissed the claims of Jesus that he's the son of God, we know this because of James, that the resurrected Savior still reveals himself to cynics and so that they can become servants like James is. And the book of James is exactly how it starts off talking about James, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he was from a cynic who became a, who became a a servant of Christ. So that's one great reason why he would have become a um, great person to lead the fledgling brand new church um, that was developing in Jerusalem. But I think there's another reason why, um, and maybe it's actually two reasons, why he would have became the leader, or he would have been the leader that God by the Spirit would have selected become to become the first church, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And the way we can understand this is by thinking about what church history tells us about the two nicknames that James has um, over the years. If you read um, history about James, there's two different nicknames that were given to James, and they speak to his, his life and his character, and I think these speak to why God would have selected him. The first nickname that James had, um, and you read about it often, it was James the Just. James the Just. And he was become called James the Just because he had impeccable character. That when he said he was going to do it, he did it. He was a man of justice. He lived out what he believed. He was a man of incredible character and integrity. And so when they looked at him and they said, what would, what would define James? They'd say, here's James. It's James the just. He was a man of incredible character. And so obviously that's a great quality to be a leader. But his other nickname says something else about it. It was Old Camel Knees. And I think if you had to give me one of his two nicknames, I want this one. Because the reason they called him Old Camel Knees is because history says that he spent so much time in prayer, kneeling on his knees in prayer, that his knees developed calluses. And if you've ever seen a camel, a camel's knees looks like that, like calluses. And that he said his knees, he spent so much time on his knees, up to three hours a day that he spent praying, that when they, when they described James, they called them Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer. Now, if I was to appoint someone to be the first 
Christian pastor or any pastor or any leader in a church, and I was going to describe you in a way, any of you in a way, that would be the highest praise and compliment I could ever give you. I would call you just an old camel knees. Um, fill in the blank. Suzanne the just or Mitch the just and or old camel knees. Why? Because it would speak of your impeccable character and your devotion to prayer. When you think back to 2,000 years, that's how James is described. He's described with impeccable character and a person devoted to prayer. So that's why, in my mind, and history's mind, James is a pillar. James is an example for all of us to follow. Now, I said earlier that James is the author of the book of James, the book that has his his name on it. And I've got to be honest with you, when I was a brand new follower of Jesus in my early 20s, James was always my favorite book. And the reason it was my favorite book, and I I came to find out later why, I had to figure out why was it so appealing to me, is because James gives practical guidance for Christian living. And I would say this, if you're new to the faith, or you know somebody who's new to the faith, one of the best places you can spend a lot of time in the New Testament is in the book of James. Some people say they call James the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's a book that James just gives very practical advice from Christian, for, for Christian living. And so especially for a new, con, a new convert to Christ, a new believer in Jesus, it's a great place to gather information to see what does this Christian life look like. So what I want to do for our time that's remaining together this morning is I want to let old camel knees speak to us. I want to let him give us some practical advice for our authentic Christian living. So if he was sitting here, I'd say, James, what do you have to say to us? And I think there's some things he would tell us. And I think one of the first things he would say to us is this. Talk is cheap. Action is required. Grab your, grab your Bible and open up to the book of James, which is way near the end of the New Testament. Talk is cheap. Action in Christianity is required. James chapter 2. There's so many things I could have taken. It was the hardest part about this sermon was trying to pick out just a couple of things that I could talk about this morning because I could spend all day talking about the various things that James says that are so impacting, are impactful for your life. So James chapter 2, look at verses 14 to 20. Look what it says. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister was without clothing and in need of daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you, show, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Look what he says there. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. Now think about this. Is James saying that we can earn our salvation here? Is he going against the Apostle Paul who talks about, you know, you're saved by faith? And is, is James trying to say, no, I disagree with Paul? Not at all. Is he trying to say that we earn our salvation, that we can work our way to heaven? No. 
What, is, what he's saying is that talk alone is cheap. That Christianity is more than just saying you believe in something. And all kinds of people confess. They say, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. Or I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. And they really believe that's all there is to it. But James is trying to get to the heart of that and say, no, there's so much more than just saying that you believe something. That if you really believe something, the way you know you really believe it is it leads to action. That's what he's saying. That that the kind of faith that is to be a follower of Jesus is that you actually follow that you say, I believe it, and it, and it changes how I live and who I am and how I think and how I act. And, and he says something in here that just, if you, if you could have just read right over it, you might have said, oh, that's out of place. But he's trying to say just how strong of a statement this is or such a, a, an amazing illustration about the fact that you can say you believe something, but unless you believe it in your heart and it leads to transformation, it doesn't matter at all. He says, look it, the demons believe there's one God. He says, but obviously saying, but that doesn't mean they're right with God. He says, you can believe something all day long, but if you don't believe it in a way that actually changes you, he's saying you really don't believe it. You really don't have faith. And if I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and if I really submit my life to Jesus and become his follower, then it will change how I live. That's what James is getting at. My life will be increasingly, and your life will be increasingly, more like Jesus' life who gave his life in service and sacrifice for others. Yes, we come to Jesus by faith, by just believing. We don't earn it. We just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. I receive you by faith. We receive it as a free gift of salvation. But the evidence that we are united with Jesus comes through the life that we live with Jesus. And James gives a simple illustration to to illustrate this. Look at verses 15 and 16. He's talking about, remember, Christian people in the church. He's called them brothers and sisters. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you think of how that could be, someone in, in your Christian circle, and one of you says to them, how Christian does this sound? Oh, my brother, go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? His answer is, it's no use at all. It's not real faith. He's saying that one's faith is revealed by what they do. That genuine faith results in genuine action of love towards other people. He says you can be like a demon or you can be like a person in church who just says, hey, I believe this. But if there's no corresponding action, he's saying, he's saying listen, I doubt the authenticity of your faith. He says it like this in, in the chapter previous. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, but, pr- but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So he's talking to Christian people and he's saying, listen, it's possible to delude yourself that you hear the word, but you don't do the word. The word speaking of this, the word. You hear the word of God through the Bible, the word of God through the spirit into your, into your heart. He says, don't delude yourself. Don't trick yourself. Don't think you're all right. If you say, I believe this, but that belief doesn't change anything about the way you live. So a camel knees would like to look us in the eye, and he's James the just. He's James the old camel knees, and I think he was James the bold, because we see that a lot, and I think he would look us right in the eye, and he would say, be doers of the word. Faith without works is dead. And that's what old camel knees would tell. That's the first thing. You go, wow, this guy punches right in the face. I think that's why I like James so much. He just cuts, he cuts through all the fog 
and says, listen, this is what Christianity is really all about. So that's the first thing. What, what else might what James did just, James old camel knees, say to us? Well, I think he would say this, and I think this is so important for every one of us, especially in our, in our culture of today. He would say this, you need to learn to submit your plans to God. That we need to learn to submit our plans to God. Flip over to chapter 4 of James. Look at starting in verse 13, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4. This could come out of, out of a, um, any conversation that we have today. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James says, listen, church, we need to learn to submit our plans to God. There's an old saying that I was reminded of as, as I was reading this, and the saying is this, the more things change, the more things stay the same. It seems to be, uh, this is how we think here. This is what I'm going to do. I got all these plans. We say we're Christians, but we just make this whole set of plans all by ourselves that human nature hasn't changed very much. Think about it. James was writing to Christian people 2,000 years ago, and he's addressing how they plan their lives. And obviously, back then, as it is today, it was common for them to make all these plans about what they were going to do and how they're going to live and, and all the things they're going to do. And he gives an example. I'm going to go to such and such a city and I'm going to make, do business for a year and make a profit and do all this. And to me, it sounds just like a lot of the meetings I find myself in. Well, these are our plans. This is what we're going to do. Here's our one-year plan, our five-year plan, our 10-year plan. Here's my business plan. I'm going to, to uh, work till this certain day and then retire and then I got it all planned out or this is the business I'm going to do. I got it all planned out. Now, our plan's wrong. No. But are they our plans or are they plans that have been surrendered to God? And that's what James's real point is here. We ought to say, I have a professor uh, that I just got done you know, with school and, and she always gets mad if you use the word ought um, because she's saying we should live by, what we, you know, by, by not being driven by guilt and fear and I, I agree with that. But James very clearly says, this is what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, I'll do this. If the Lord wills. Think about knowing that as a citizen, this is about knowing that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that God is the one who has a grand plan for you. That he's the one who comes up with the plan. I don't come up with the plan. He's the one who comes up with the plan. He's the one who gifted you uniquely. He is the one who called you by name. Why? Because he has a certain thing he wants to do in and through you to create the grand plan that he's doing for all of our, all the world, all of his kingdom. And that every single one of us, you are valuable part of the plan of God. But if we just go off and do our own thing, then the plan of God in our life and the grander plan of God that we're part of goes unfulfilled in the way that God intends for it to be filled. So the best way to live is to seek to make your plans in light of God's 
guidance. That's what James was getting at here. Make your plans in light of God's guidance. Spend time seeking his direction and then walk those plans out because I'm not saying it's easier. It's a perfect science. And there's a lot of times I go, God, I don't know what to do. And I'm trying to do my best to surrender my plans to him. But we do our best to make our plans in the light of his guidance. And then we walk them out in a manner that we allow God to redirect us if he desires to do that. That we get into it and we go, this is what I was going to do. I thought that was the right thing, but God redirects me because I want to live out his plan for our life. We try to live in a continual relationship with God, continually listening for his guidance. Friends, that kind of life, this life of dependence, this life of looking to God, this life of saying, God, I don't want to just live my plan. I want to live your plan for my life. I would say this. It is the safest way to live. It's the most dangerous way to live. It's the safest because you're in the hands of God. It's the most dangerous because he will call you to do things that you cannot do on your own, and that's how you know it's part of God's plan. And I also say this. It's the most rewarding life you'll ever live because God will accomplish through you things that are beyond you because you lived out the plans of God and not your little plans. You lived out your plan that God created you for. And you will find fulfillment like no other way as you live out the plan of God for your life. So you ask yourself, God, what do you want for my life? God, what do you want for me today? Sometimes it's not the path of upward mobility. A lot of times it's the path of downward mobility and into the heart of God and into finding fulfillment like you never knew was possible before. So James would say, listen, Christians, submit your plans to God. Let's think about one more thing that James would say. What might he say? I think he would say this. He'd say, Christian, look at me. Prayer works. Prayer works. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, look at verse 13. If anyone among you, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call on the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effect of prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What would James say? He'd say, listen, prayer works. The effect of prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What's he saying to us? He's challenging us to pray first. Oftentimes we keep prayer as something we do last. James would say, pray first. He said, are you sick? Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. And James wants to make a very clear point about prayer. He's saying this, that any of you, if you're walking with God, any of you can pray and see God do amazing things. And that's why when he points out that Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, that's a powerful prayer. I don't know anybody's ever prayed a prayer like that, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. But when Elijah prayed, he didn't say, and Elijah prayed this, and it worked because Elijah was just only one in a 10 million person that walked with God so closely. No, what did he say? He was a man with a nature like ours. He on purpose 
points out the human commonness of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great man of God, but he's pointing out here, he didn't point that out about him when he's talking about prayer and answered prayer. He points out the ordinariness of Elijah. In other words, Elijah was just a man. And if God responded to him, God will respond to you and to me when we pray. Yes, it says go to the elders of the church and be anointed with oil, and there's a day coming where we're going to do that again. Um, we, you know, social distancing is not letting us do that right now, but you know what? We will do that again. And it says when you go there, confess your sins. So it's funny. I've never heard any Christian come to me and say, um, Pastor, I need you to anoint me with oil and pray for, but I need to confess my sins to you. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a principle here. We've got to ask ourselves, is something going on in our life because we're walking in rebellion to the Lord? But he says, listen, go to the elders of the church, be anointed with oil, confess your sins, but realize that we are just ordinary people praying to an extraordinary God. And he's saying it's the extraordinary God who's going to answer our prayers. He is the miracle worker. James invites us to pray and to trust God in prayer. Because he knew, guess what? I think this is one thing that's unique about James. He knew Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He says, you're praying to my brother. And I didn't believe in him, but now he rose from the dead. And I believe in him. And I went from a cynic to a ser- servant. And I'm telling you, this is no ordinary guy. This is God. And he's powerful. And he says, listen, are you sick? Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. Confess your sins. Be anointed with oil. But pray. Because The prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. He says just everyday ordinary followers of Jesus aren't everyday ordinary because we are people filled with the Spirit of God. We go to prayer and God hears us and God does things that would not have happened had we not prayed. So old camel knees has some great advice for all of us. What's he say? Be a doer of the word. Submit your plans to God And no church, no child of God, that prayer works. Now, I can't think of a better way for us to wrap up our time than by committing ourselves to the advice of old camel knees, by welcoming the presence and the lordship of Jesus into our our presence, into our lives, as we celebrate communion together. As we celebrate communion, what we're going to be doing is we're saying yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And what I'm going to challenge you to do during these moments when we have communion is that if any of these points, being a doer of the word, maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm pretty good at being a talker but not so much a doer, submit that to Jesus. You're a person who's really good at saying, here's my one-year plan and my five-year plan and my ten-year plan and I got it all worked out, but you haven't really submitted that to Jesus. Today during communion, Submit it to Jesus. You're a person who is in need right now. Is anybody sick? Pray. Is anybody suffering? Pray. You're going to submit that to Jesus today. So every week we've been telling you to have your elements for communion ready. So hopefully you have them there right now. So reach out and take that bread and, and hold it in your hand. I remind you every time we take communion that it was on purpose that God gave us the ordinance of communion at the Lord's Supper and he gave us elements we could hold in our hand to to help us realize how real 
our faith is, how real what we're, our action is. That as we are holding this, as real as it is holding this in our hand, God's presence is that real in this moment. And he's right here. For you surrender to, to worship, to turn to. So take the bread right now. Dear Jesus, we know that we need you in all of these ways. And Lord, there may well be people listening today that do not yet know you as Savior and Lord. And if that's the case, Lord, right now in this moment, make yourself real to them. So that in these moments, they can say yes to you. If that's you today, in this very moment, you can welcome Jesus into your life. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm separated from you. I want to be free of my sin, of rebe- my, my life of rebellion. I want to be free of the garbage in my life. I want to be brand new. I want to be free of addiction and problem. And today I come to you and I surrender all that and I ask you to come into my life, make me brand new, wash my sins away. And from this day forward, I want to follow you. For those who already know him, right now you're saying, Jesus, I say yes to all these things that James said yes to. And I want to get better. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a doer of the word. So I welcome you to radically transform me from the inside out by your presence. Let's partake together of bread. Jesus took the cup. The wine for us, grape juice. Symbolizing his shed blood. James ends his book talking about if any is sick among you. Come to the elders, be anointed with oil, and the prayer prayed of prayer of faith will raise up the one who is ill. What miracle do you need from God this morning? What sickness needs to be healed? What provision needs to be met? What broken relationship needs to be restored? The answer to it all is Jesus. So right now you're holding in your hand a symbol of the power of God through the shed blood of Christ. But more than that, it's, it, there's, there's something very spiritual and real in this moment. When you're saying yes, and you're saying, God, I need your strength and your power and your goodness your grace and your healing within me. So right now, as we hold these these things in our heart, these things where we need that intervention of Jesus, let's now welcome Jesus to do what only he can do, heal our bodies, provide for our needs, restore our relationships. Let's partake together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us in this moment. No matter where we are, separated by the miles, there is no separation in you. You are always everywhere now. And I pray for every one of my brothers and my sisters that the truth of your word and the power of your spirit 
would so transform us that we'd walk in the confidence in you that shines through in the darkness of the world. Let us be shining lights full of faith and hope and confidence in these days of uncertainty. And let your church rise up and shine. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength. I pray now, Lord, embrace your family, embrace your church, and carry us into this day that you may use us for your glory as we, as we walk with you. We thank you in your powerful and holy name, Lord Jesus.